Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. Well, good morning, East Haven. We have, uh, we have sung some powerful words this morning. Lots of truth in the words that we've sung and the things that we have heard. Uh, some of that truth probably lands on us as we're singing in a way that reminds us that that may not be fully true about us yet. Um, we may see him as wonderful, but he may not be all that we desire. He may not be actually the center of our worship in the daily comings and goings of our life. Uh, many times in moments of worship, I have sweet times of conviction that God reminds me there's much more. And we would be amiss if we ever just walk through the, the moments of singing songs or repeating lyrics or uh, even, even reading scripture and being together and think that we've somehow arrived. So there's a conviction part of the worship experience for me, for sure. But there's also the aspirational telling the truth side, that we're the children of God and he is our all in all. And that is a reassuring moment. It's part of the reason the church comes together. Several weeks ago, I had the opportunity to speak to you, and we talked about what it means to be a church of purpose and passion and perspective. And, of course, when you're a church, that's people. That, that's us. And then last week, as I began this uh, interim pastorate, which I'm so grateful for, to be with you. We talked last week about the pastor as overcomer, overseer, or shepherd, or elder, pastor, and what that looks like based on the Word of God in 1 Timothy 3. Now, my name is Gary Mays, if we've not had a chance to meet, and it really is a high privilege for me to be with you week after week, as God allows, in this time where you search for a pastor. Hey, I got good news. God's not taken by surprise about this and humanly speaking you've been to this place before as a church and God has faithfully answered with a shepherd a pastor for you and uh, I'm joining you I'm excited to see who God brings to East Haven in the future today I'd like for us to think about one of the foundational reasons that the church exists as a matter of fact, it's a core purpose of the church. Some might even say it's the destination or it's sort of the promised land of purposes. Uh, John Piper, quite famously talking about missions, once said, the reason missions exist is because worship doesn't. Because God's heart is that every one of us, as a matter of fact, every tribe and tongue and nation on the planet throughout eternity would be white, hot worshipers of the Lord Jesus, worshipers of God, every one of us. So in that quote, John Piper talks pretty eloquently about the fact that uh, all the ministries, all the community, all the things we do are all out of God's heart for us to be worshipers because it's the only place we can reasonably land as worshipers. Can I take just a moment and do a bit of an aside about what we've heard in the service? I listened to Sean Parker, who's the executive director at the Mississippi Baptist Convention Board, and 
the fact is we're in a we're in a spiritual battle. I don't know if you feel this as often as I do or maybe in the ways that I do, but I'm so aware that our culture has become untethered to absolute truth. Can I get an amen there? I mean, we're, we're without being grounded in absolute truth in such obvious ways in our culture. It used to be just two or three generations ago that we would go to a schoolroom or a schoolhouse or a front yard of a school in uh, most of our nation just two or three generations ago, and you might well see the Ten Commandments placed out in front, because even though everybody in that place would not call themselves Christ followers or Christians, it was at least a moral code that said there is a God, there are some rights and wrongs uh, that we need to live by in order to be, uh, and then in the context, great students, great citizens, successful people, satisfied populace. I mean, you can extend that, but at least there was a bottom line about how we thought. And as I listened to Sean this morning, I'm reminded that we don't think that way as a culture anymore. Now, hear me say this because sometimes I think we get sort of riled up about things. The lost culture is not our enemy. They're not our enemy. They're people who are somehow in this sovereignty of God and his graciousness created in the image of God in some respect as human beings, that good outside of their sin and lostness, and that God loves the culture, the world, just like he loves us. So it's not us pitted against them, whoever them or they are. It is, in fact, a culture that we need to be astute enough to know has has let go over time of any uh, rippling of the truth of God's word that's been deeply ingrained in our culture. And we're going to see that battleground more and more. Here's the reality of it, and some of you who've traveled around the world or maybe done missions in other places, we live in something of a bubble. Did you know this? The world does not operate or think like we do. We live and and move in our culture with the residual outcome of the gospel permeating this country. Even as we have conversations about uh, many of the bad things that this country might be uh, known for at some other places, folks, compared to the rest of the world, we are a gracious, merciful place in large part because of God's graciousness through the gift of the gospel. So deep in the roots of of seeing every individual as mattering, as understanding the value of life, uh, speaking to culture issues from, from slavery to taking care of the poor and the fact that we're the most charitable nation on the planet and Mississippi is the most charitable state in the nation per capita. The reason for those things are the residual effect of the gospel. So we have some challenges to be sure. The goal is not to create people who look like us and who worship just like us and think like us. The goal is that every person would have the privilege of knowing and responding to the grace of God so that each person would have the opportunity to be a worshiper in right relationship with God done for us through the sacrifice of Christ that he would extend grace so that he can have what some have called 
trophies of grace. It's people that God has graced who love him because he loved them first. That's part of our job. It's an expression of worship. Now, I'm your interim pastor. Let me tell you how much fun interim pastoring is. It is awesome. It's, it's just, it's a great thing. Uh, and I'm, some, on some occasions, I'm going to repeat myself, and I just want you to know some of that is on purpose. Some of that is because I'm senile and old and losing touch with myself. But uh, one of my favorite people who had been the pastor at First Baptist Jackson said uh, in his multiple interims over the years, Stan Buckley said, if I'd known how much fun interims were, I'd have skipped pastoring entirely and just interimed throughout my life. It's a lot of fun for a couple of reasons. One, I don't actually work here. That's funnier than you think it is because the pastor always has competing interests and competing voices and competing expectations and your pastor's going to be human. Well, I'm human too, but I don't actually, I'm not going to be your pastor. That's a pretty much a guaranteed thing. So there's some freedom in that. And interim pastors have to handle that responsibility because we can just throw grenades everywhere if we want to. And I want you to know that would never be my heart. At the same time, we can be a little challenging because you all will go to your beautiful home in Brookhaven and you will eat lunch, but I will get in my car and go somewhere else. And I'm sort of removed from the, the fragments of the grenades if I throw them. So we get to be a little challenging. So here's my little bit of challenging this morning. We sang some magnificent worship songs this morning, and there was a chance for uh, kind of an audible participatory response, you know, a little applause. It sounded like a golf clap at a really, really, really bad putt. You know what I mean? Like six and a half of you went, yeah, God's great. All right, let's, let's move on. So here's my challenge. If you're going to clap people, clap. I wasn't looking for that, but I'll take it. Um, if, if you're going to, whatever it is you're going to do, let's do it with all of our heart. So we fit in. Clapping is not always appropriate. As a matter of fact, for some of my generation and beyond, clapping's a little complicated. My Presbyterian friends are still mystified that anybody would clap in church. But clapping is what somebody called many years ago a 21st century or years ago a 20th century amen. It says, I agree with you. I'm on board with that. I want to respond and say my yes is on the table to what you just sang, what we just shared together. So I just want to encourage you, clap. Now, you may be 70, 75, 80 years old, and you're just mildly offended. I don't want to clap. I'm not a clapper. Clap anyway. Just go ahead and try it. It's not that hard. Uh, Last night, you know, like at 1145, Mississippi State was dominating. Some of you people who will sit in church with your hands in your pockets like this, last night were in your living room going, yes, yes. You were so excited. And when Ole Miss won and and the baseball teams over the years and the football teams and you cannot control your enthusiasm but we come to worship and we kind of bottle it up i was in a uh, and again i may repeat myself from time to time some of that's on purpose i was at a wedding sometime back great pastor he said to this young couple he said and part of my counsel to you 
And he called their names and he said would be to have moderation in all things. Except worship, of course. And, of course, I laughed because worship is exactly what we're most moderate in. We're untethered in most things. We have enthusiasm about a lot of things that don't count. But in worship, we'll control at all costs. And I'm not asking you to be crazy. I'm simply asking you and extending freedom to you or even permission to you, if I might, if you'll indulge me, to fully engage. So when it's time to clap, clap. And when it's time to sing, let's sing and let's respond together. This is such a great place. And, and God's not surprised by your circumstance. And you have, I'm thinking about Robert in particular because I've been watching him lead us this morning. You have such a great staff and a great history and a great legacy here. You have great leaders. I'm listening to Scott, getting to know Scott over the last several months and really over the last several years. And Scott represents many of you as deacons and others. Just tremendous leadership. And God's going to honor that. Today, back to the topic at hand, I'd like for us to think about worship because worship really is the destination. God's heart is that all of us would be worshipers, uh, that we would respond somehow to him. And I want to start with a definition for worship. Now, when I grew up, worship was what happened between 11 and 12. Can I get an amen? I mean, that's what it was. Anybody know when worship is? 11 to 12. Uh, I heard... uh, One preacher friend of mine said that somebody walked up to him one day and said, do you know when the service begins? And my preacher friend said, the service begins when the worship ends. And that's a pretty good line. For me, worship was 11 to 12. And I grew up in this kind of environment, uh, and I I know many of you did too. And this is what it looked like on Sunday morning. And I'm going to ask for an amen at this because you know this is going to be true. I mean, I'm I'm unpacking it for you. This is what it was. In the church I came to Christ in, I didn't really grow up in a Baptist church, but I arrived about 13 years old, gave, came to Christ, was there every minute I possibly could be from that point on. When I was 16, I had a key to First Baptist Columbus. It was my home away from home. It was awesome. But on Sunday morning, here's what happened. There was an organ prelude. There was a call to worship. We stood and we sang the first hymn. Somebody got up and welcomed and gave the Sunday school report. We remained seated at that point and sang two other hymns. Then the minister of music said, now we're going to sing together our offertory hymn. We'll sing the first, second, and last stanza. Would you please stand to your feet? And we would stand to our feet. And we sang the first, second, and last stanza because clearly the third stanza of no offertory hymn is saved. I don't know why we didn't do that, but we didn't. And we would sing one, two, and four, or one, two, and five. And then we would take an offering as we were seated, and then the pastor would stand up and preach for 27 and a half minutes, if we were lucky, sometimes 47 and a half minutes. And then we would extend an invitation, we'd sing one of about five hymns, and at the end of that, we would have a, uh, a prayer or maybe even the doxology, and we would all go home. And that pattern happened all of the time. And for many of us, when we think worship, we think that pattern. It's an hour where we come together. These days, I've watched three of the last five Sundays, and although there is music worship and music leadership toward worship here, uh, the songs are not the same, and the, the 
thread of truth that runs through what we sing are not always the same. There's a freshness to that, which I really appreciate. The video this morning, I love that we're informed about what the body of Christ is doing. Uh, And part of that is because we have technology and the possibility of having a look into some other ministries or some other places that maybe we didn't have a number of years ago. The worship is not what happens between 11 and 12. The worship is our response to God. So let's talk about worship. I define worship this way. Worship is placing our mind's attention and our heart's affection on God and responding to him for who he is and what he's done. It is a response of our life to him. And worship at the end of the day is always about, we use this language a lot, and sometimes it throws me, maybe it throws you, but it's about lifting something up. And that is an image of putting something above us, making something in our life higher than we are. It is the adoration, the worship, the, the paying attention to, the highly valuing something. And the truth is we all worship something. Uh, I think it's been fascinating this week as we've watched the Queen of England die. And it's really amazing as we've watched the news, and this is common in our culture. Uh, It happens here as well. If somebody particularly well-known passes away or there's a tragic accident, people will arrive at some place, a memorial location, and place flowers. Today is 9-11. And on 9-11 in New York City, after that uh, unbelievable tragedy, people placed flowers and wreaths and pictures of lost loved ones. Uh, It's something of an act of worship in that somebody is being lifted up. In England right now, those flowers are arriving at Buckingham Palace, and the streets are filled full of tokens of expression of valuing someone and lifting someone up. It's more than a memory. It's actually an exaltation of someone. Clearly, Uh, able to be seen in a country that still has a monarchy. We talk about Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but we don't have a king. But England now does. And there's somebody who is lifted above that who is Jesus. But there's a king and there's an exaltation that is so clear in worship. Worship is placing the mind's attention I want to stop right there. We live in a culture. We live in a world. We live in churches where we think that the mind is the most important aspect or component of our life. So we tend to be really proud of the fact that we learn something new or that the preacher gave us something new or that we, we found out something new. And many times those something news, uh, God uses to direct right to our heart as he's conforming us to the image of Christ. Sometimes it's just something new. You know, it's a nuance of Scripture. It's, it's some sort of tiny fact that we feel good about because we understand something else. And we should feel good about that. And we should understand and plumb deeply in the depths of Scripture. But really, it's our mind should really be about him and not just what we know for our sake. It's about understanding the character of God, the grace of God, the presence of God in our life. Worship is placing the mind's attention and the heart's affection. A few weeks ago, as I talked about purpose, I started with the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, and I talked about that passage that 
Jesus often quoted, and I said it's the most oft-quoted passage, uh, perhaps, in the history of the world because Jews quoted that and still do constantly. It's, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. It is a call to loving him, to worshiping him. It is a heart issue. That passage, of course, continues, and you're to impress these truths or these commandments on your children, and the passage follows the Ten Commandments. So even aligning our life and what we do should line up with loving him with all that we have. We see that in the New Testament. We obey him because we know him, because we love him, because he loved us first. Worship is placing the mind's attention and the heart's affection on God, and then responding to him for who he is. Uh, when I grew up, there would be times, sometimes, that we'd, we'd sing songs, you know, campfire moment or a youth group moment or an adult small group moment or a church, particularly kind of a Sunday night warmth kind of moment. And we would sometimes call those moments praise and worship. And the difference there, commonly known, is that praise is a response to the character of God. So, God, I praise you because you are immutable. You never change. God, I praise you because you're omnipresent. You're everywhere. God, I praise you because you're omniscient. You know everything. God, I praise you because you're my father. God, I praise you because you're the good shepherd. God, I praise you because you're the provider. God, I praise you because you're the one who knows me best because you're our creator. God, I praise you for who you are and your character. And then in the common language, worship was a response to who he was. So we, we praise him, we recognize him, and then the worship of our heart is to exalt him or put him in a place higher than any other. Worship is placing the mind's attention and the heart's affection on God and responding to him for who he is and what he's done. And I can't think of a reason to worship God any more than recognizing what he's done in our life. He's extended grace to us. He hasn't loved us because we deserve it. We all know that. He's loved us because he loves us. Ephesians 1 says that he loves us for the praise of his glory. He's lavished his love on us. So we worship because that's who God is. And seeing him puts us in our rightful place. Thinking about worship, I I picked some verses because there are mandates to worship, but there's clearly the act of worship that's throughout Scripture. So just for your head moving to your heart, let me give you maybe three Scriptures. Uh, Psalm 100, there are a couple of verses in Psalm 100, which is a psalm that's known as a psalm of worship. Many of us would, would recognize these verses. The psalmist says, worship the Lord with gladness, come before him with joyful songs. And we've done that this morning. It's hearts that are glad, it's a response of us as a people who's been graced by God. A little later in Psalm 100, enter his gates with thanksgiving. And his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, that's for what he's done, and praise his name. We praise his name. We give thanks for what he's done. It's about who God is and what he's done as our response. 
And then I love this passage, and you'll see it here, and it's familiar. It's Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul's writing the church at Rome, and it's, it's like this theological textbook. He's explaining much about the grace of God and the history of, of how God in Christ has come to redeem all people. And then it becomes very practical in Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your body as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Becoming a living sacrifice is your spiritual act of worship. You know, some translations call that your reasonable act of worship. So when we see who God is and we see what he's done, we place ourselves on an altar of worship, which is the only reasonable response. It's, it's what we should do. God, I've seen you in your glory. God, I recognize your you and your holiness and and your righteousness and your majesty and somehow God you have called yourself father and you've called us children and you've given us the spirit and the spirit cries out in us Abba father we we recognize who you are and as a result of that we die to ourselves because altars are places of sacrifice that's the only reasonable thing we could do it's a spiritual act of worship I, somebody said a long time ago, the problem with living sacrifices is they always crawl off the altar. And that's the challenge for all of us. It's not just a one and done in the sense of our, of our sanctification of God working out his image in us. It's an everyday thing. So worship, uh, while we're placing our mind's attention and our heart's affection on God and responding to his character and what he's done, worship is a reasonable response to that in a practical way every single day. Our audience is God in worship. Our audience is God. And that's one of three things I want you to definitely walk out with today. Our audience is God. And let me tell you how important that is. Uh, I'm just being transparent here for a minute. I'm aware when I'm in a room like this or another room and we're involved in worship, singing, taking notes, being a part of the morning. I'm aware of other people, aren't you? And there is something inside of me, and I would imagine there's something inside of all of us to varying degrees that says, man, I wonder about them. I wonder what they're thinking. I wonder what they're thinking about me. I wonder how I come across. I, I wonder what's going on with them. I mean, we, get, we can get pretty distracted. And the reminder that at the end of the day, worship is about God, and he's the audience, rightly understood, that takes the pressure off of us. I'm going to talk about a couple other components of worship this morning, and I'm going to go ahead and admit now, remembering that God is my audience helps me. Otherwise, I can become overly sensitive to the thoughts or the projected thoughts of the people around me. Some of you would love to sing more or to engage more, but you're concerned about what others think. I know that because I've got that, and I've observe that as something that's true about all of us. We sang a great song earlier, and it talked about dancing, but I saw no dancing. Zero dancing in here. Nobody, nobody was dancing. 
I, I saw that. We, we sing those kind of lines pretty often about our freedom in Christ, but, but we really don't put the freedom in Christ to our feet. Uh, it's just a great line. Well, you know, it's metaphorical. It's not really about dancing with joy. It's kind of dancing with joy on the inside. That's how we think many times about how we engage in worship. When you know that your God is your audience and he is God and he is the great holy creator of the universe and he's loved us, it gives us some freedom. Guys, I don't have an agenda today that we dance. So everybody relax, okay? I've seen me dance. Um, you know, as far as dancing, I, I love this line I heard many years ago uh, about kind of how I look. When I dance, I look like a sack of cats. Uh, it, it ain't pretty. And it's not the kind of dancing some of you might do at the prom or at the event. It's not that. That kind of dancing is I can't help but move my feet and I can't help but be excited because I recognize God's presence in my life and the freedom I live in Christ. No agenda for dancing. Matter of fact, I don't have a particular agenda for anybody here except that we respond correctly, authentically to the grace of God in worship. Second component I want you to hear is content. Our content when we worship should be the truth. Uh, It shouldn't be just what we feel or what we hope for that God might be like or what he might do or what God might uh, choose to do in us or through us. It's, It's not just hope but our content because God is our audience is the truth back to God. Our content and Worship should be the truth. Uh, John, the fourth chapter, if you've got your Bible, John 4, 23 and 24, Jesus is really responding to uh, this, this engagement with this woman, and he says, Yet a time is coming, and now has come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks spirit and truth. Our content should be the truth. He continues and he says, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. Now the two sides of that are in spirit and we're grateful that God's given us the Holy Spirit to empower us. The scripture says to convict us of sin and of righteousness, to empower us, to comfort us, to lead us. We worship in spirit and in truth. And it's so easy to become distracted and not sing the truth. Uh, John, the first chapter, says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And, of course, we could name a dozen verses probably off the top of many of our heads about truth. But I think of John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He embodies the truth. So here we go, worship. Number one, our audience is God. And number two, our content should be the truth. Now just keeping it real, I've done a lot of Christian music, and a lot of it feels pretty good, but it's not always, it's not always encumbered with the truth. Sometimes it's It's soft and warm and cuddly, but it's not always the truth. Many, many years ago, a pastor hero of mine named Peter Lord 
was at a student ministry, youth ministry conference at Ridgecrest Conference Center. And there were several hundred youth ministers there. There was a worship leader, and this was about 45 years or so ago almost. And there was a guy with a guitar, and he's singing one of the most popular choruses of the time. And, it, and it's great, and we love it, and it feels great. And, and I can almost see about 1970 sitting around the campfire singing this. But there's a great moment in the song that says, I hear the brush of angel wings. I see glory on each face. So there's a conference, there's 500 ministers in the room or whatever. The worship leader is singing. They sing this chorus. And this pastor gets up from about where Robert is seated on the front. He's the main keynote speaker. And in the middle of that chorus, he gets up, Pastor Lord gets up, walks up, walks over to the worship leader. Now, Peter Lord was a pretty intimidating character. He had a funny accent. He grew up in Jamaica. He was an amazing man. But he walked over, and you can almost feel the awkward when I tell the story. You know, like, oh, what's going on? And the song kind of rattles to a close in the room. They stop in the middle of that chorus, ultimately. And Peter walks up, and he says, hmm. He had a funny little hmm about him. He said, hmm, let me ask you a question. How many of you in this room have just heard the brush of angel wings. And interestingly, no hands went up. And then he said, how many of you would declare, would testify that you've seen glory on every face? And no hands went up. And he said, isn't it about time God's people begin to sing the truth? Ooh. You know why I remember that 40 years later? Because it was a signature moment that God used to remind me that his truth was enough. And it's not that there's a problem with sharing personal experience or even poetic language or allegory or metaphor. Nothing wrong with any of that to try to capture the truth of who God is. But at the end of the day, worship is about reflecting back to the God who is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the truth, and we should be singing the truth. That should be the content of our worship. It's not speculation. It's not just personal experience. It's the truth. Now, I'm not taking on anybody this morning about this illustration in just a moment. So everybody take a deep breath and relax. Uh, Do not email me when I talk about this. But for years in churches, there were what we fondly called the worship wars. You've enjoyed them here because every church goes through it. And landed at a a beautiful place here, but uh, many times it was a stylistic preference war is what it it wasn't really about worship it was about style and every church goes through it and 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 you guys you you know the drill in in a lot of churches that many of us in the room grew up in there were two saved instruments two saved instruments the piano and the organ 
The drums were not even under conviction yet. They were so lost. And they lost. And a saxophone straight from the gates of you know where. Uh, so some saved instruments, some not saved instruments. And then there were people who had preferences about style and music and hymns and screens and whatever it is. Folks, everybody's got a preference about everything. My wife does not like Chinese food. Can I get an amen? Yeah, see, I knew somebody in here didn't like Chinese. But she loves Mexican food. That's, those are her preferences. And many times we make preferences a case for biblical truth. And sometimes that can, that can strictly divide us. And here's the illustration that I don't want to get an email about. But sometimes we sing even hymns that are cherished and warm and highly regarded, but they're not necessarily full of the truth. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the... I, I've never been to that garden. And I, I get it. And it's okay but it may not be the truth. And although it, it's not harmful and it may bring us to a, a sweet sense of awareness because God is so merciful and gracious, our higher call would be to worship in truth. Placing the mind's attention, the heart's affection on God and responding to him for who he is and what he's done. Our audience is God. Our content is the truth. And our posture, our posture should align um, and be appropriate for whatever worship is about in that moment, for what God's doing. It should be appropriate and align with the purposes of God in that moment. So let me talk about posture for just a moment. We, we have a posture all the time, physically a posture. You have a posture when you're seated, I have a posture when I stand. But in many sports or many endeavors, we have a posture that's appropriate for that endeavor or that moment. And worship also arguably should have a posture. It's not a game, and it's not a keep up with everybody else, and it's not who's more spiritual and who's not more spiritual. But I want to just speak to you encouragement and freedom about posture this morning. And I want to describe that for just a moment. We tend to think there are two postures. They're standing and seated, but biblically there are more. Uh, Psalm 95, 6 says, Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. There's a kneeling posture. Psalm 22, verse 29, All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. That's a picture of everybody who lives who will die will kneel before him. First Timothy, a New Testament passage of many, uh, talks about hands. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Psalm 63, bouncing back to the Old Testament, I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. So there's, there's literally kneeling and there's hands lifted. But there's more. Uh, Deuteronomy 9, in this passage, Moses talks about his posture before God. He's received the Ten Commandments. He's heard from Jehovah, and he's speaking to God's covenant people. And he says, I lay prostrate before the Lord these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord has said he would destroy you. Moses is intervening 
and he is on his face before the Lord. Philippians, the second chapter. I love this passage. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God a thing to be held on to, but he gave that up and became obedient to the Father, even to the point of being translations, bondservant or slave. And then at the end of that passage, he makes this declaration that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's bowing again. It's kneeling again. It's, it's humbling again. So our posture, if we have freedom in a place, can reflect what God's doing in our heart and the audience, he's the Lord, and our content, which is the truth at any given point. And again, it's not a who's more spiritual than others. It's not a keep score. It's not look over there. It's not trying to recognize people are looking at us. It is a freedom that says, God, in response to who you are, I'm going to respond with integrity, authenticity, and freedom in this place. Uh, Many years ago, I was leading a conference, and I had the deacon body from a First Baptist church on the coast that you would know. And I was talking about posture, and it was really a new thing for me to think about freedom that we might enjoy with posture in worship. And, and it wasn't to be in any way uh, disruptive. It wasn't to stand against any of the structure, any of the tradition. It was just to say, you know, if God is God, and he is, and we respond to him, it could be that there should be freedom in ways we don't know. And here's the illustration I used. I'm talking to these gentlemen and their wives, the pastor and the pastoral staff and their wives. And I said, what would happen if by chance on Sunday morning, the choir came out and sang Majesty? Majesty was a big worship song that was very, very popular at the time. And it's majesty, worship his majesty unto Jesus, all glory and honor and praise. What would happen if somebody just in response to the presence and the majesty of God just stood up in your service? What would happen? And I really was really using that as a hypothetical, common, popular worship song that pointed us to the magic, or pardon me, majesty of God in a context they would understand to say maybe we should consider freedom and allowing freedom in those moments. So we had a, a good conference for the Friday night and the Saturday morning, and I went home. And on Sunday afternoon, I got a phone call, and the phone call was from the pastor who said, so this morning, we had no idea But the choir walked out and sang majesty. And in the middle of this big First Baptist Church, the pastor's wife stood. And you can imagine the eyes. And across the room, somebody else stood. And then one of the sweet, godly, senior, wise ladies stood. And in a few moments, that body rose spontaneously as a response to the presence and the majesty of God. And the pastor said there was a sense of and anticipation of God's presence that day unlike any I had ever experienced before. Now, it's not a trick and it's not 
Again, it's, we're not keeping score ever. It's just to say if God is God, and he is, perhaps we'd want to be especially mindful of his presence and the work of his spirit in our life. Worship is placing the mind's attention and the heart's affection on God and responding to him for who he is and what he's done. God is our audience. Our content is the truth. And our posture should reflect what God's doing in us. You know what happens when you have that kind of freedom about posture? You don't have to stand up because you've got freedom. And I've had many moments in my life where the Lord was working on me and I I didn't need to stand up. I, I didn't even need to stand up on occasion when the worship leader urged us to or instructed us to. But at other times I've looked around and the room has just been filled with spontaneous acts of worship that lifted all of us together. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I don't have an agenda for us to look any particular way. I guess I do have an agenda for you to really clap when you clap. I guess I said that. But I want to express encouragement. I don't come with particular authority. Just encouragement and permission challenge to fully engage in worship. There are those of us of another generation who tend to be a little more in our head. I mean, we're thinking, and and we love the truth of God's Word, and we love to be challenged, and we want to make application of that to our life. But I want to encourage each of us not to leave our heart behind and to to be a people who worship with our whole heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, all that we have in a way that would honor him. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song of worship. And I want to invite you, as much as you're comfortable, to close your eyes when we, Robert's going to stand us. Uh, If you want to remain seated, that, that would be completely appropriate. But as much as you're comfortable I want to ask you maybe just to extend your hands before you. This is an expression of giving. It's also an expression of receiving. And it says, perhaps in a simple sense of posturing, God, I'm putting my yes on the table. God, whatever you want to do, you have your way with me. And God, I want to honor you. I want to to worship you. I want to exalt you, God. And and I want to receive from you what I need so that I might look more like Jesus. Now, we're going to close our eyes. And our audience is God, and we're not keeping score with anybody else. And and I know the drill. So I'm just, I'm being very transparent at a certain risk. If you're 40 years old, 50 years old, 60 years old, 70 years old, 80 years old. You've been doing what you do like you do it a long time. And change brings just a little bit of a challenge, maybe even a little bit of discomfort. Then I'm going to encourage you to give it a try this morning. God, our yes is on the table as we worship you. You'll know this song of worship. I'm going to pray for us. Robert will lead us. This will also be our invitation. So if God has led you into this place to perhaps join the body at East Haven, 
Oh my goodness, these are incredible people. This part of the body of Christ will love you and help you grow and be a part of community and worship. Uh, East Haven's an incredible place. Or perhaps there's something going on in your life and you need to be prayed with and encouraged and cheered on. This would be an opportunity to do that as well during the invitation. Allow me to pray for us and then Robert will come and lead us in worship. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we are thankful for the ways that you love us. We're so thankful that you've spoken our names and called us by name. And you see us and you hear us and you know our heart. And God, we recognize it's not about us, but it's about our response to you, the God of the universe. God, you are holy and majestic. You are pure in all of your ways. You're unchangeable, and, and you know all that there is to know. God, you've searched our hearts. You know our desperation. You know our longings and our hurts. And you tell us that you love us. So God, today, as you would be pleased by the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to worship in spirit and in truth. God, I don't know the circumstance really of anybody gathered in this room. I don't know the dark moments or the sleepless nights. I don't know the difficult prognosis or the challenges with aging parents or wayward children, complicated family situations, financial stress. I don't know all of those, but God, you do. And I'm grateful that you've got us in the palm of your hand. And your word tells us clearly in the eighth chapter of Romans that nothing will separate us from you. Not height, nor depth, nor life, nor death. Not demons or principalities. There's nothing that can separate us. And we acknowledge that truth this morning. So whatever we bring, whatever we need, whatever we hand back to you, I pray we do that in these moments. God, with hands outstretched, I pray we'd be ready to receive today. God, I know you've got more for us. You want to conform us to your image. You want to change your world for your sake in the name of Jesus. Thank you for the privilege of being gathered together. We love you, grateful for your grace. And we pray you would have your way in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.